Okay, well, if you'll uh, stand with me as we read from Colossians chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 8 through verse 23. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or of a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Sorry, I lost my spot there. And the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Father, I pray that we would be informed of these errors. Lord, they're not um, gone. There are plenty of religions out there that are believing parts or even proclaiming to be truth some of these errors that the church in Colossae is uh, believing and God, through your word and through the Paul, you are seeking to bring truth, seeking to proclaim Christ as supreme over all. Lord, I pray that this morning we would see these errors and, Lord, be able to be on the watch for these errors in our own lives and in the lives of our friends and our brothers in Christ, our families, Lord, and that we would be discerning as a body, as families, as individuals, that we would discern what is true, that your word would be our light. Lord, I pray you would guide us this morning. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit this morning to guide my thoughts and my words, not so that I can 
receive glory, but Lord, that you would. Pray you would help the children here today to hear your word, to be moved by it, and help us as adults to hear your word and to apply it to our lives. Or that we would not be led astray or taken captive by the whims of man. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning's message is entitled, The Crisis in Colossae. The Crisis in Colossae. So we already did our preliminary message, the introduction to Colossians. But this is a specific message on what it is that the Apostle Paul is seeking to um, refute. And though I don't believe that all these errors are can define a specific group, but these errors have all combined at this particular point in time in the church at Colossae and most likely is also influencing the church at Laodicea and Hierapolis. You know, Paul said for them to read this in the other churches as well. So I, I think that this is an error that is um, persuading many in that area, but he specifically addresses this to the church at Colossae. And so as we begin, we see here in verse 8, the beginning of a warning from Paul. And we're going to go into much more detail than today about his refute and his argument against these errors, but I just want us to see what these errors are. And I want us to see them in light of a a truth that many of us forget. We need truth. We need to hold on to our seats. And you say, well, what are you talking about? If you're not holding on to your seat in a, in a helicopter crash, you're going to have a big problem. I was um, just thinking about some training that I saw, a simulation. But I just want us to go on a, a little trip before we talk about the simulation. Let's all imagine that we're taking a big Huey helicopter... I don't know why. <laughs> we're going on a retreat and somebody has a Huey helicopter and we're over water and suddenly the engines start to fail. And you know that if you crash in water, it's going to be a major problem. It's not like an airplane. Airplanes actually, if they, if they go slow enough, and we know this from the story in, on the Hudson Bay or Hudson River, remember the the pilot who was able to land and they were able to get everyone off the plane before it sank because it was still buoyant. But helicopters are different. Helicopters, when they crash, guess what happens? Where's all the weight? The engine's on top of the helicopter. So they actually flip over and sink. So if you imagine with me, you hear the helicopter pilot saying, we're going down, we're going down, hold on to your seat. And you're thinking, why? Why would I hold on to my seat? How's that going to help me? Well, in marine training, the goal, the reason you hold on to your seat is so you don't lose track of what you know to be true. 
so you don't lose your bearings. Because imagine if you woke up in the middle of the night at your house and your whole house was upside down. You say, well, I know my house so well, I could easily get out. But imagine your house was upside down in the water. And it's dark or murky. Do you think you could get out of your house? I mean, you and I would think, well, yeah, but everything's upside down. So your whole world is upside down. And the same thing in the air, the helicopter. So you're in this helicopter. They're saying, hold on to your seat. Make sure you're there. You're buckled in, but you hold on to your seat and you feel around. You're feeling for windows to get out of the helicopter. You don't leave your seat till you've found a way of escape. Because the moment you leave your seat is the moment you'll become disoriented because you don't know anything but that you know where the seat is because you sat in it and you know where it is in relation to these windows. So they actually have training for this. You see this helicopter right here. Oh, went the wrong way. The helicopter on top left That's what happens. It goes upside down. And the next picture over on the right is this this simulator. They actually put every Marine pilot through this. And every Marine, I believe, actually has to go through this if they're going to be serving in this capacity. And this thing, they they put you in and they drop you and the thing twists underwater. And you have to get out. And it takes most of these guys, it's four times before they really understand what this is because their mind is so caught up in, i got to get out of here. And they'll forget to hold their seat. Almost every single example I saw, the first time every single one of them let go of their seat before they had found a way of escape. And they had to be saved by the divers. They had to be helped out by the the divers there that were training because they had let go of their seat. They could not find an exit because their whole world was upside down. As you can see, that would be pretty difficult. But one of the videos I was watching, he was kind of bringing this around to a Christian concept as believers when our world is in crisis that is when truth is the most important and truth is that seat if we want to use that analogy we need to hold on to our seats until we find God's meaning of escape from whatever situation we're in because if we let go of the seat if we let go of the truth and say you know what this seat is not going to save me this seat this seat is sinking it's useless. If we are like that, then we will become captive and we will die in that helicopter. Many, why do you think they have this simulation? Because many men have died because they didn't hold on to their seat, because they didn't know how to get out of these helicopters when they crashed on water, because they weren't prepared. But the U.S. Naval Force is so, or the Navy and, and even the Marines, are so intent on their people surviving that they're going to teach them what is true, what will help them. 
And that's why truth is so important in the church. Because our world is in constant chaos. There's constant crisis. I mean, just look outside at what's going on in our world today. And it's not going to get better. It may be better in certain areas, and but there's always a flux. There's always a, a change. And if we as Christians are not holding on to the truth of God's Word, and the truth, the main truth, that Christ is supreme, that He is the answer to everything that we have, then we will not make it. God has made a way of escape, but are we holding on to the seat of truth that He's given us so that we can find it? They even say, okay, you unbuckle, so you, you have to, they call it a rodeo ride. They, they hold your seat between your legs and then unbuckle so you don't come off. And then you slide down the seats, because they're all in line, you slide down the seat till you find a window to get out. You don't let go of that seat till you've found the way of escape. But oftentimes as Christians, we let go of truth because we think we found a way of escape. And in reality, we've lost all direction. And that's what happens on, on these, these simulators. It takes almost to the third time before people are able to truly understand their surroundings. Because your nose is filling up with water. And, Anyways, I thought it was a really good illustration for why error is so important to spot as Christians. Because error is captivating, but it's empty. It's empty. It won't leave us where we are. The Apostle Paul, in verse 4, he actually he uses the phrase in verse 4, which we didn't read. He says this, I say this so that no one will delude you. Delude. I thought, this is a very interesting term. This is... Very similar to like a chemistry term. Anybody, have you ever diluted a, a substance before? Uh, some of us will buy, for example, we, we'll buy washer fluid for our car, and they'll have, you, you need to add water to this. Or, um, I'm trying to think of, oh, antifreeze. You know, you can get like full strength antifreeze, but you're not supposed to put that in, your, you're supposed to add water to it. Right, we're we're diluting it, so it's it's mostly antifreeze, but there's a lot there's a water in it. It's fifty fifty. This is what the the apostle Paul is worried about. The problem is not that there's not any truth in what they're hearing. It's that the truth has been so diluted that there's no actual truth in it. It's been tipped on its head. It's upside down. So the devil wants to delude us, as verse seven, verse 4 says, with persuasive arguments. It's not that the error is not persuasive. If it wasn't persuasive, no one would believe it. Right? Isn't that how error always goes? At least it's been that, that way in my view. There, it's very few times that someone is... Embracing error that doesn't have a persuasive argument for why what they believe is true. I don't know anyone that is not persuaded of something when they began to embrace it. 
I won't talk about certain multi-level marketing places that I don't like, <laughs> but some people treat them like a religion, right? It doesn't matter what the, what the product is, but no matter what, they treat it as, oh, this, is, this will save your life. Have you ever had a product like that pushed to you? Now, all of us. We, we all know of things like that. And it's because they make persuasive arguments and some people believe and some are like, you know what? I think there's something fishy about this. There's a little bit of discernment. We have discernment. So the Apostle Paul is concerned that they are being persuaded by a, a partial truth. The devil never just flat out throws sin in your face and like, oh yeah, here, you'll be tempted by this. No. He puts a little bit of truth in it so that you'll, it'll taste good. He doesn't just throw salt water in your face. He's, he's giving you a little sugar water. Make it taste a little bit better. So starting in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. This is the idea of no one kidnaps you. Takes you captive as, as a, a, a spoil of war. That's the idea. That these, these men are being kidnapped. These believers in Colossae are being kidnapped from the kingdom of God and being taken into the kingdom of this world. And they're, they're being kidnapped through... And I, I want to translate this just a little bit different through a... A philosophy which is empty deception. A philosophy which is empty deception. I don't believe that these two are, are separate. I believe they're, they're speaking about the same thing. It's as though empty deception is describing this specific philosophy. Because philosophy, if you go back to the Greek, is love of wisdom. Love of wisdom. Philo. Sophia, which is why Sophia has her name, which means wisdom. So, love of wisdom. But the problem is, this is not actual wisdom. This is wisdom that is parading as wisdom, but in reality, it is foolishness. There's lots of wisdom like this running around in our world. There's lots of people running around saying a lot of good things. But then you keep listening and you're like, oh, I didn't see that being the result of what they were saying. I was listening to a, a psychologist, listening to a book by a psychologist. I know you're like, what in the world are you doing doing that? Well, I, I, I like to understand where people are coming from. And I believe this specific argument, this this. Uh, psychologist is making is extremely popular among um, conservative men. I just wanted to understand it. And it's so interesting. He has so much truth in what he's saying. I mean, you could almost... He's even quoting the Bible, but he's not quoting the Bible as truth. He's quoting it as, as something that speaks truth. That, that gives truth. That it that we as human beings have imported into the Bible what truths are, not that God himself has spoken through his word. 
And so there's lots of things that he's saying, but in reality, when you get to the end of it, there's no hope in what he's writing. He's trying to help people live a better life. And I'm not talking about Joel Osteen, by the way. <laughs> he's not a psychologist. But he's, he's trying to give them ways in which they can live a better life. But in reality, all he's doing is setting them up for failure. Because there's no actual impetus for change. It's a continued view for legalism. And that is a big issue here in Colossae. It's a big issue. But the devil wants to take us captive. When we have been persuaded of something that is error, it is very rare that somebody comes back from that. Not that it's impossible. But how many of us have seen people who even sat in pews here, or that you've known in your life, who seem to be on fire for God, but because they embraced error in one way or another, they're no longer walking with God anymore. I know multitudes. I even have seen this happening recently. And I'm seeing it coming more and more evident because the church has become undiscerning. We're not holding on to our seats anymore. We're not, and I'm not saying your church pew seat. We're not holding on to the seat of truth. We're not holding on to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as all supreme. Because when He is Lord and Savior, then we do not buy into these lies. And that's what Paul is dealing with. The whole book of Colossians is saying, Jesus is everything. There is no other way. He is the answer. So this philosophy is empty. It is void of any value. It is complete deception. We can kind of look at philosophy as a worldview, the way in which we view the world. That's essentially what philosophy is. You go back to the early Greek philosophers, that it was their way of viewing the world. So our philosophy as Christians should be led by Christ at the center. Is He the head of our view of this world, or are we viewing the world through a different lens? Because the, the philosophy that, that he is describing, he says, according to. You see that? According to. He says it twice in this verse 8. According to what? Tradition of men and elementary principles of man. So first, this Philosophy is, it seems to have ancient ties. Which, unshockingly, that psychologist I was reading his book, he has tons of ancient ties in his book. But it's completely useless. Lots of big words, lots of ideas. But in reality, useless and empty. 
It's a tradition of man. It is not of God. It is not given by God. It's ritualistic. Secondly, it is what, he, what the NASB is translates elementary principles of man. And I, I have done a, a little bit of research on this expression, and I actually think what he's saying, this, this expression is very common to describe the elementary spirits of this world. Speaking of demonic powers. So that this philosophy is not only according to the tradition of man, but is actually being pushed by the demonic realm. That this is a demonic spirit. Just like every cult. You name the cult, there's a demonic force behind it. Jehovah's Witness, Mormon. We can, we can name the cults. Christian scientists... Every cult has persuasive arguments that are empty. They have no hope. Why? Because they have cut themselves off from Christ. He is no longer the head. Isn't that interesting? Most of these cults do deny the divinity of Christ. All, almost all to the point. Eventually, when you begin to buy into a lie, you will eventually deny that Christ is the Son and the God of this world. It's interesting, this, at the end of verse 8, there's a strong analogy to Isaiah uh, chapter 29. If you'll turn there with me. Isaiah 29 and verse 13. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip for service, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. So this phrase consist of tradition learned by rote is the exact it's identical in the, the Septuagint Greek translation of Isaiah to this 2.8 it's just one, one word is flipped right see these people are saying they're drawing near to God right we see that at the beginning of verse 13 they draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. They're saying they're following God. They're saying with their mouths that, that they worship me and they honor me, but in reality their hearts are going far away from me. Why? Because everything is surface level. Their faith is only surface. Why? Because they're they're legalistic. They're, they're, they're paying attention only to what's on the surface. They're not dealing with the heart. They're not dealing with gossip and bitterness and pride and true humility. 
They're, they're all looking at the top. Oh man, look at, look at how religious this person is. Look at their practical lives. Oh, they're so aesthetic. We see that here. They're, they're, they're so disciplined in their, their, their lives. Not that discipline in the Christian life is wrong, but overabundance of discipline. Again, that's, that's where that lie comes in. But these people that Jesus is, that the, that Isaiah is, is prophesying about are people just like those in Colossae who are believing these men and women who are speaking what seems to be truth, which in reality is a vain and empty philosophy. It is following the, the world and the spirit of this world. This is why we have to be so careful because this philosophy looks good. It's so popular. But it's a spirit of this world. And and another proof of this, I believe, is in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 2. If you turn back to Colossians with me. In Colossians 2, Paul says something that I believe clues us into the fact that he's not just talking about elementary principles of man. He's talking about elementary spirits of this world. Because the word translated here of man is is actually cosmos, this world. In verse 15 he says, when he has disarmed the rulers and authorities, which, which rulers and authorities? Earthly authorities? I don't believe so. I believe he's actually talking about spiritual warfare. He says, disarmed rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through who? Him, Christ, on the cross. Did Rome fall that day? No. Did the rulers in, in Israel fall when Jesus was crucified? No, he's talking about spiritual warfare here. And so I believe the Apostle Paul is saying this, this philosophy is not only man-made, but it's demonic in its realm. This is why it's so persuasive, because the world is latching on to this demonic teaching. You say, well, I would be able to to, to see something demonic. Not if your world's upside down. Not if you don't hold tr- fast to the truth. You let go of your seat, you've lost all orientation. And then everything seems to be true. Whatever feels right. Whatever gets me out of this helicopter alive. So we have to be careful because these philosophies are easily held fast to. We are more likely to be like the church at Colossae than the saints that we think of. It is so easy, brothers and sisters, to be led astray. This is why I'm so, for lack of a better word, I'm excited about this this series because I know that if God, if Christ is supreme in our lives, 
If Christ is the love of our life and He is all that we need, if we truly believe that, we will never be led astray. And that's what Paul is going to say to us. If He is truly who He says He is, then we should never fall into this kind of error. Paul goes on in verse 16. Verse 16, we begin to see what what this this, uh, religion really looks like. And, And we begin to see two types of errors. You can see this in my slide. The first one is a practical error. And the second one is theological error. So practically speaking, this is one of the first. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. No one is, is to judge you in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So what is he saying? This is a mix of Judaic tradition and mysticism. Right? Because we see this. First he deals with diet. Right? What you eat and you drink. Food or drink. It's interesting Every time you see these three things mentioned in the Old Testament, two of those times, it's always, so it's mentioned four times, these these three food, drink, and days. These three things are only mentioned four times in the Old Testament. And two of those times, it's related to idolatry that has come out of it. It's pretty interesting that 50% of the mentions of these three things in the Old Testament are idolatrous, not worship of God. Because they have elevated these legalistic views so high that now that is an idol to them. So this is where, if you remember last time, I know it's been three weeks since I preached on Colossians, but when I talked about it being a, a sort of Judaic Middle East or Judaic Eastern mysticism, kind of a precursor to the Essenes in um, Israel or Canaan and Gnosticism in Asia Minor. Because this idea of, okay, you shouldn't eat or drink this, right? We, we see that again in verse 21. If you look there, because these two relate very, very closely. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Right? These, and it, what do you say? In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. What's he, he's arguing from verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles or the, the elementary spirits of this world, why are you living in the world as though, as though these decrees apply to you? You say, well, what does this have to do with mysticism? Well, it's 
it's kind of this Gnostic view. So I want to explain Gnosticism just a little bit, though this is this the time period that this was written is pre-full blown Gnostic thought. But Gnosticism is the idea of knowledge. This idea that you have some kind of special wisdom that makes you elite. Hmm. We treat we treat science like that today. Don't we? Oh, he's an expert, so he must be completely right. We can't we can't fathom that because it's it's too above us. Side note. But the Gnostics try to deal with evil in the world. So we, we all have this question, why is there evil in the world? Well, Gnostics pursue this view, and they say that the physical world was unrighteous, and therefore God must have emanated in. And that means that God must have had to have multiple emanations, or um, what's another, I have another word for it, or expressions of himself that are less godlike. So they, they have these tiers of God. You know, there's God, God, and then there's this being that's almost like God, and this being that's less like God, and, and finally you get to angels, and, and they're, they're as close to humans as you can get, and still be godlike. And so they believe that evil was in the material world when God created. You know, the chaos, that that was evil. Now, I know this, please stick with me. I know this may not sound super interesting, but it helps us understand what Paul is refuting. So the material and physical realm, so what we right now are seeing and feeling and, and touching, that is, that's what's evil according to this view. So for God to have a relationship with us, He had to become less divine or else He, he couldn't be near us. And because this material and physical world is evil, then we should try to be very disciplined in how we view this world. And that's where we get aesthetic practices in the Gnostic and, and mystical views. You know, if I need to stay away from these foods and these, these items and, and I need to do these things because that will make me closer to God. That's why they have the do not touch and do not, do not eat. And this, this kind of ties in with Judaism and though it seems like, well, that's so different. Well, when you've so bought into legalistic practice, it's just a matter of time before those two ideas marry. And this is why, for example, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. Because your physical body is evil. And many, this is an error that comes up in the church later on. There's, there's writings in church history, that address specifically this issue not long after the death of the apostles. This error, this belief that the resurrection, that Christ didn't, re- didn't resurrect bodily. 
that it was a spiritual resurrection. And this is why it's so important that we hold, true, hold fast to the fact that Jesus was resurrected bodily because they're trying to, to place evil as a part of the, mir- the material and physical world, which is not scriptural. And this asceticism, or, and we see this in, in monks and um, throughout church history groups buying into this, well, if I, if I live like a pauper, if I live broke and hungry, then I'm denying the physical realm and, and that's how I get closer to God. It's this idea that, well, I can, I can become better and eventually I can actually have a direct communication with God. You see where this is going? I hope, I hope you do. And this is what Paul's concerned about. He's seeing these, these beliefs, and though it's not full-fledged Gnostic belief yet, and full-fledged Essene thought, which is an, another part of, of Judaic mysticism, he sees that this view will ultimately deny the resurrection, not only of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, but the bodily resurrection of the saints. Scripture is clear. God's people will have a new body, not just a new spirit. That we will be resurrected bodily. But this whole Gnostic view was, if you had this experience, you were suddenly intellectually elite. Oh, you were so blessed. Have we seen this in the church? Well, I think in your generation, especially in the 80s, what, where was this elitism coming from? A place that I graduated from. <laughs> No offense to seminaries, but a lot of seminaries created a two-tier Christianity, these theological elites, and then the, the little lay person. They don't know enough. They, they, can't, they can't truly understand Scripture. Baloney. That is garbage. We can know God's Word through His Holy Spirit. God gave us His Spirit so we can understand and know Him. And that's why I, I'm thankful that I went to a seminary that doesn't hold on to this trash. But there are many people that I went to school with that almost treat, they don't realize it, but they treat themselves that way. Well, I have more knowledge than them, so I, I must be right. No. I'm not better than any person in this room because I went to seminary. I am only as... Good as God has done a work in me. I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to learn the many things that I did. And it does help me, but it doesn't make me closer to God. I'm not able to get closer to Him in prayer just because I completed this class or that class. And my spiritual discipline does not draw me closer to God necessarily. Not saying that we shouldn't have discipline in our spiritual lives. Not saying we shouldn't be praying and, and reading the Word and 
Those things are true, but the problem is with error, it becomes an extreme. Oh, you need to be praying 24 hours a day, or you need to be reading you know, your Bible every moment of every second. And out of this idea, they don't realize that they're embracing a Gnostic worldview, but out of that comes monks. The monastic movement was a rejection of what was going on in the church at the time. What was happening? The church was embracing all religions, unfortunately. So at this time, Constantine had made the church the the church of the state. And then suddenly it became a, a social need to be a part of a church. You know, if you want to have acceptance in the courts, uh, uh, to be even the, the elites of Rome, then, then you need to be a part of the church. So what was happening? All these people were joining churches and bringing their false religions in with them. So I don't, I don't want us to... to think about monks in a totally bad way. but And so monks were like, well, the only way we're actually going to be able to have a relationship with God is if we get out of the church because the church is so corrupted. And, and the best thing to do is just to get away from the world completely. We're, we're just going to reject the world wholeheartedly and we're just going to live in our communes and our, in our little communities and, and that's how we're going to stay close to God. Essentially, they're buying into this. They don't realize it. Because they've forgotten that Scripture says, be in the world, but not of it. We're to be a light in the darkness. That doesn't mean we should all disperse from here and join heretical churches and try to convert them, because that won't work either. But as a church, we need to be discerning. We need to realize that when people are, 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 are coming to us and saying, you know, you should really not do that. Well, where, where do you get that? It's not in our power. It is in the power of Christ alone. Because this is according to the commandments and teachings of men. The do not touch, the do not eat, the, the okay, you've got to respect this festival and, and do these new moons and and... The Sabbath. Not that we shouldn't. I believe the Sabbath is actually good for us to have a day of rest. God knows that what we need physically. A rest in Him. Not a rest in our own strength, but resting in His power to give us strength for the week that is coming. And with this Judaism, this is why Judaism and, and this mystic mystical view likes to combine is because Orthodox Judaism is very legalistic. They like the do not touch and the and your flesh does too, right? Your flesh loves. Okay, just give me a list of things not to do and to do and, and I'll be good. Well that's easy for us. What's hard is the spiritual to do list. Because we can't change our heart. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. The Apostle Paul doesn't leave us there. 
He also mentions in verse 18, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Right? They're worshiping angels because they see angels as an emanation of God, an expression of God. Now, this is just God, but less divine. And so I have to go through Him to get to God. What does this sound like? Prayer to saints. This is why I have an issue with prayer to saints. Because I don't see, one, I don't see it in Scripture, and Hebrews is clear. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus, our intercessor, is there. We don't need anyone else. I know I'm, I'm getting excited, but this is why I, 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 don't, I cannot see how the church can embrace this kind of living. How we can embrace praying through anyone other than Jesus Christ our Lord. God has given us access, full access. Why do you think the veil was torn in two? This is a grand theological error. And we saw the practical, right? This asceticism, this self-abasement. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But in reality, it's, it comes down to your practical life. What you do in life is informed by what you believe about God. Your theology will define who you are eventually. What you actually believe about God will define your life. And that's why it's so important for us as believers, like those men who go through the simulator four or five times to make sure, what? That their training is good. That their body will do it instantaneously because they've been trained. They, it is muscle memory. It's hardwired into them. Okay, hold on to that seat when that plane goes down. Get your breath real quick and find an opening and get out. But don't let go of that seat till you found in a way of escape. They're so well trained. But in the church we act like training is, is anathema. Oh, we don't train? Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little excited. But... This is why it's so important for us to know what we believe and to implement it every day. Because if you are cutting corners today, when crisis hits, when the helicopter turns upside down in the water, you will cut every corner because it's not worth it. You're not holding on to truth when you're flying high above the ocean. Wait till you land or you crash. This expression in verse 18, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. This is a picture. Let's go to a ball game together. We've, we've all gone... How many of you all know soccer very well? I know there's at least a couple here who have uh, grandkids who know soccer. So... Let's imagine you've gone to a soccer game, 
And the umpire's missing. You're like, where did the umpire go? Well, then he finally comes out, and you're like, okay, we're ready to, ready to go. Well, the, the referee, not an umpire, but that's baseball. Um, the referee comes out, and you're having a pretty good game, but the home team is losing. At halftime, it's 4-0, to zero, which that's a pretty good throbbing in, in soccer. And so at halftime, you see an argument in middle field, and there's a fan from the home team arguing with the umpire, and eventually the umpire leaves and gives him his clothes. And then this new umpire, a fan of the team that's losing, begins to lay out a new set of rules, completely new. So the, the, the away team is very likely going to win this game at halftime. But the new rules make it where it looks very likely that the home team is going to win now. Why? Because the rules say that the home team gets all their players and the new team only gets half their players. The home team can touch the ball with their hands, and the, the, the away team can't touch, even the goalie can't touch the ball with their hands. Now, who's going to win that game? This new ref has brought in new rules. That's the picture that Paul is saying. Look, you are about to win the prize, but there's somebody coming in, they're acting like an umpire or a referee, and they're laying down new rules and saying, if you follow these, you'll win the prize. But in reality, they're stealing it from you. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Don't let someone come in and tell you that the rules are different than what God has laid down in His Word. Don't let somebody come in and, and, and steal and rob you of the prize that God has for you in Christ Jesus. The devil wants to steal everything from you, right? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If he can make you believe in a new set of rules so you can make it, he will. Isn't that what all these, these cults have? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists. You know, if you follow these rules, then boom, you'll, you'll be okay. But that's not the truth. Right? Because these men, the Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 18, take, he says they're taking his stand on visions he has seen. He's seen visions. Where do you think those came from? The Lord? I doubt it. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So he's seen these visions and he's like, Oh, wow, these are spiritual things. Yeah, demonic spiritual things. These are elementary principles of man. And what's the problem? He's inflated them with his flesh and mind in verse 19. It says, and not holding fast to what? The head. Who's the head? Christ Jesus. 
This man has rejected truth because he has not held fast to Jesus Christ, the head. Hold your seat. From whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from the devil? No, from God. If Christ is not the head, guess what? The church will not grow. And not only will it not grow, it will die. It will cease to live. But this man, or these men who are becoming umpires and referees who are making their own rules and and telling you you have to abide by them, those men are letting go of Christ. They're not holding on to Christ anymore. And Paul finishes in verse uh, 23, he says, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. But how? In self-made religion. It seems wise to those who are are believing it, those who are, are making it this religion for themselves. Just go outside the doors of this church. There are thousands and millions of people all across America who are serving what? themselves, their own religion. It can be money. It can be fame. It can be power. What are people searching for in the world? I just had to go off and find myself. Is that a, isn't that a popular expression? I need to, find my tr- I need to be my true self. Oh, I don't want to see your true self. No offense. You don't want to see who I am in the, in the flesh. God has called us to be transformed. That doesn't mean we're all going to be uniform. That's what legalism is. Like Legalism produces uniformity, not... And I mean uniformity. If we were legalistic here, then all the women would be wearing the same clothes and all the men would be wearing the same clothes. But we're not. We're following Christ. But self-made religion is all about me. Have you found it interesting that many people who have found their true self look like other people who have found their true self? You know, you have the, the rebellious goths. In high school, I thought this was very interesting. That was a long time ago for me. But it was like, these people were rebellious, but they had other people that looked like them. <laughs> like, what? I thought you were different from the crowd. Oh, yes, we are. Like, but you look like the other ten girls that have all black on. Or you look at all the, the ten guys that have all black on. Or, or the rednecks. No offense to the country folk. But they all had the same boots and the same hat on. You could spot who they were. They found their true self, but their true self was, was like other people. Why? Because they went somewhere other than God to find who they were. Who God has made us to be. And they became to look like them. Not like what God has called them to be. 
You can see that in every atmosphere. Go to a college campus, you're going to see the guys walking around. And I, have, I have clothes like this, so I've got to be careful. But, you know, they've got their, their Sperry's on, if you know what those are, Doc shoes. They've got their uh, pastel-colored shorts and their pastel-colored shirts. I can't talk. I've actually got one in a bag outside. They're comfortable, I mean. <laughs> but you're like, oh, yeah, those guys are frat boys. At least that was what it was in college for me. Do you see the guys all walking around in baggy clothes? And, oh, yeah, those are the, the thugs and the ballers. You can go on any any any... Any event, and you just see these people, and they're they're very similar. But they've all they've all said they found their true self, but really they they've just found a group of people that they they like. But as Christians, we will only find who we really are if we are surrendered to Christ. If He is the supreme Lord of our lives, then that will truly lead us to who God has made us to be. We're not going to find it in, in being trans or bisexual or all these, L these letters. I can name them all. I can't. Now there's like so many variations of everything, it's, it's insane. But why is that so embraced by our society? Because people are so anxious to find out who they are, but they're all looking in the wrong place. As believers, we need to look to Jesus because what is it about these false, the self-made religion? Paul ends in verse 23. He says, To be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement. So this is all bringing, again, this is talking about putting your body under discipline. Let's, let's get rid of the material world so that, that we can actually be holy. Well, what's Paul say? He says, and severe treatment of body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This doesn't work. It proves it's wrong. Just think about it. How many of you like donuts? Yeah, we all do. <laughs> Mr. Lanham says he does, but Granny Faye says he doesn't. <laughs> but we all like, most of us like donuts. But these donuts, if you think about donuts and talk about donuts, and, and, but you're trying to, let's say you're trying to, to, to watch your figure. Some of us in here don't have a problem with, we could probably eat donuts all day and it wouldn't affect our figure. Maybe Mr. Lanham here. Um, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's why he doesn't eat a lot of donuts. But I eat a lot of donuts. You'll notice uh, in a couple months, a few few extra pounds and but all I have to say is I can take donuts out of my life for a long period of time, but guess what? That's not going to take away the temptation to eat a donut when I drive by Krispy Kreme and the red lights on. Those of you that know what I'm talking about. Those things are good. They melt in your mouth and you're just half a dozen in before you realize you've eaten six. You're like, well, I better just finish the box so that no one knows I had any. <laughs> no, I didn't get any for the family. <laughs> no, I, but removing temptation completely from your life does not fix the problem. Why? Because it's a heart condition. And that's the problem with self-made religion, a religion that 
that Paul is dealing with is it doesn't go to the heart. Now, if you believe that if you eat another donut, you're going to die, guess what? It doesn't matter how many red lights, how many flashing signs are on that Krispy Kreme building, but you're not going to eat another donut. The temptation has lost on you because you know it is worthless. And I'm not going to stop eating Krispy Kremes because of what I just said. I don't believe another Krispy Kreme is going to kill me. But I'm just using that that illustration. We cannot defeat sin in our own strength. We need God to transform our view of sin. We need to see sin as cutting us off from what? The head. Christ. If He is the Lord of our lives, then our sin can create a wedge and a, a separation between us and Him. I don't want that for myself, and I don't want it for you all. That's why we need to hold fast to Christ. When the crisis comes, we'll have something to hold fast to and and find our bearings and find a way of escape. But if we are so caught up in the world and in its philosophies and its its teaching, we too, like the, the Church of Colossae, could be in great danger. So next week we will begin to go through the book of Colossians starting where we ended last time I I preached with thanksgiving for what God has done in the church of Colossae. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would hunger and thirst for you. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would work in our lives, that we would see those areas of our lives where he, we have embraced and maybe even become persuaded of things that are not true. I pray, Lord, that we, as we go through these Scriptures, that we would begin to be informed of those, those wicked ideas and thoughts that the devil is trying to use to draw us away from Christ. Lord, give us wisdom so that we can combat that thinking in our world, that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can proclaim Him as Lord to our neighbors and our friends. Lord, You are supreme. Help us to believe that. Increase our love for Your Word as we've gone through Psalm 119 and now Lord as we think about your word and ultimately about Christ the word made flesh may we adore and honor you with our lives go with us this week increase our love for you we pray in Jesus name amen